The following program is recorded content created by the Truth Network. Phone lines are open. You've got questions. We've got answers. Let's do it. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, biblical scholar and cultural commentator, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice for moral sanity and spiritual clarity. Call 866-34-TRUTH to get on The Line of Fire. And now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on The Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown. You've got questions. We've got answers. Any question on any subject that relates in any way to the Line of Fire broadcast or to anything I've written or said, or you've heard I've written or said, give me a call, 866-348-7884. That's 866-34-TRUTH. That is the number to call. Uh, Always, we welcome those who differ with us, critics, skeptics, those with different perspectives. You are very welcome to call in also also uh it you still have time to vote for your favorite apologist okay this is an all fun competition that proves nothing okay it, it is it is online it's been every summer for a few years maybe one year was skipped because of covid but young man put this uh, put this together and uh uh I don't know how many, if it's 256 or 128 started with now. So I've, I've at, so each time you compete against someone and people just vote on Twitter. And some of it is who's got a bigger Twitter following. Some of it is who publicizes it more. But either way, it's been fun because you find out about all kinds of people you didn't know about. Different apologists that are out there, different defenders of the faith. So that's been really neat. I've gotten to meet some people through this, hear about people I didn't know about. And then also hear from people and find out how our work is impacting them. So that is a real blessing and joy. I made it to the finals again. The first time I made it to the finals, I lost to C.S. Lewis. Like, take that any day, man. That's an honor to lose to C.S. Lewis. He's, He's long been gone from this world, but his work continues to speak and change lives to this moment. I mean, God knows how many tens of millions of people have been impacted through his writings and his legacy, and then writings turned into movies, Chronicles of Narnia, and other things like that. Uh, But if you've got a Twitter account, go over to my Twitter page, so Dr. Michael L. Brown, so the two L's there. And if you scroll down, you'll, you'll see a link where you can just click on that and uh, I'm up against classical theist. I don't know him at all. I've been trying to find out more about him. Don't know him at all. But interestingly enough, uh, he must have some good Twitter contacts or network because he went surged way ahead of me, like 75% of the vote versus 25 for me. So I've been having fun. And I'm doing it for two serious reasons, though, in, in the midst of this. All right. I'm doing it for two serious reasons which I'll tell you in a moment. So we're climbing back up now. We're, we're up to, it's now 54.6% to 45.4. So we're gaining ground. We've got two days left, 1,888 votes in so far. So you've got time to vote. But the, the serious part, the serious part in all this is that there are very few charismatic apologists that the vast majority of apologists are not charismatic, Pentecostal in their background, or if they are, that's 
for many, for most, that's not a major part of their life or ministry. So I, I want to use this, if we get the victory, to really, and again, it's all for fun. It's all for fun. Like I said, it proves nothing. But uh, if, if we get the victory here, what I want to do is, is help uh, encourage other charismatics to get involved and to say, yes, we believe in the power of the Spirit. Yes, we understand that dynamic, but it's not mind or spirit, heart or mind, intellect or power. It's, it's both. It's both. So you may get radically saved. You may get radically born again. By the way, by the way, I've, I've got a lot to share with you today, but Friday is caller driven. And many times when we start the show, all five lines are lit up. It's hard to get through. We're waiting for your calls and then I'll start taking them. So this is a perfect time to call. We've got phone lines wide open. 866-348-7884. Sometimes folks wait till a little later when the phone line's clear, but it's a perfect time to call on 866-34-TRUTH. So you may get saved through a radical encounter with God, right? You were lost in sin. You were full of rebellion. You get radically, dramatically, beautifully, gloriously born again. And you're walking with Jesus and things are wonderful and you're experiencing God in your own life. Maybe you're 15, 16 years old. Now you're 18, you go off to college, and you start getting bombarded from every angle with intellectual and moral attacks on the Bible and philosophical attacks on the Bible. And you start to struggle. You know that Jesus changed your life, but others say, well, I became a Hindu. I had this experience, or, uh, you know, I became, I, I used to be religious, but I'm not anymore. And I had this experience that changed my life negatively. And you start to question and you find you're, you're not so able to share your faith like you once were. You're, you're not so bold as you once were. And you realize, well, I, I need some answers. Well, often that's where apologetics comes in. Or you're talking to someone in your class and they won't even talk to you at all. <clears throat> They're not even going to listen to you at all. But when you can answer some of their questions and, and respond to some of their objections, maybe as an atheist or someone else, and maybe, maybe they'll listen and, th and then they can have the experience in God. So again, it's both. And it is both and. So if uh, we get this victory here <laughs> in the apologetics tournament, we'll use it to encourage fellow charismatics. Hey, let's, let's deepen our apologetics. Some of you are really called to this. And then the priority of Jewish apologetics, as far as I can tell, as far as I can tell from everyone that's involved in this apologetics tournament, and it's, it's a large number, as best as I can tell, I'm the only one that majors in Jewish apologetics. Of course, cultural apologetics is a major part of a life calling, but, but Jewish apologetics has, has been a heart and soul of what I've been engaged in uh, for decades. So we want to we encourage that. We know there are efforts to see more of that, but we want to encourage it even more in the days ahead. Okay, before I go to the phones, uh, let me go over to YouTube and we'll start with blood covenant. Why do Protestants not have communion every time they meet? That's a great question. The simple answer is there is no universal rule for all Protestants. There is not some always that, okay, if you're Protestant, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. So you may have uh, Protestant churches that meet once a week. You might have 
ones that meet three days a week. You might have early morning prayer. You might have late night prayer. You may have once a month extended worship services. You may have reading from the scripture and preaching from the scripture or just preaching from the scripture. So Protestant churches do things differently. And in the earliest church gatherings, from what we could tell, you would have a communal meal together. So you'd gather, you'd worship, you'd you'd hear the word, and you'd have a communal meal. And in the midst of that communal meal would remember the Lord's death and resurrection through the elements of communion. It was not just a, a, a ritual, one of my friends calls the Lord's snack. No, it was the Lord's Supper. There would be a gathering. That's why the Corinthians, some of them were rebuked in 1 Corinthians 11 because people showed up and they're, they're, uh, they show up early. They eat all the bread. They drink the wine. They get drunk. So there was an actual meal that people would have together. So the idea of having it every time you gather, you could, you could make a case for that as, as an early custom, but it's just not written in stone. So there are Protestant churches that will have communion weekly. There are Protestant churches that have communion monthly. I don't think you can do it too much, though, to be candid. All right, let's move over to the phones, starting with Stefan in Tibet, California. Welcome to the line of fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. I am uh, a great fan of yours. Um, my question is... Um, I struggle with same-sex attractions, and I believe in the Bible. I believe in everything that you say. Um, My question is, how do you think I can overcome them? Mm. Well, Stefan, first, I'm so glad that you have the right perspective, which is that you, as a Jesus follower, struggle with same-sex attraction as opposed to letting that struggle define who you are. Instead of calling and saying, I'm gay, or I'm a gay Christian, where you've already now lost half the battle, but rather to say, I struggle with unwanted same-sex attraction. I first want you to know that your identity is in Jesus as a child of God. And forever and ever, you'll be a son of God. That's That's excuse me, your primary identity. And then secondly, all of us struggle in one way or another where we have to deny ourselves. In this case, it's something very deep and fundamental in you. In other words, it's not just some some very external thing that you struggle with here and there. It feels like part of who you are. So you have to say, okay, this is, this. their desires, attractions, they don't define me. What defines me is my relationship with God. And like every other sinful tendency, there is victory in Jesus. And there are many people, some of whom I've known for many, many years, who found freedom. Some, it has been through an, a supernatural experience of God healing them deeply within, and they were changed. Others, it's been a, <laughs> excuse me, a process over a period of years where they, they grew and they got to the root of the issues through counseling and they were freed. Others have just had a tremendous lessening of same-sex attraction. So, Stefan, have, have you ever reached out to Restored Hope Network and the resources they have available? Uh, no, I have not. Uh, okay. 
Well, let, let me just give you two places I would encourage you to go. Um, check out changedmovement.com. Changed okay. movement. It's either .com or .org, but you'll find it. Start reading the testimonies there. You may want to reach out to folks there based in California. Changedmovement.com or RestoredHopeNetwork.org. All in one, Restored hope network.org read the testimonies reach out for the resources there and stefan stay on the line if you don't have my book can you be gay and christian i want to send that to you as a gift so stay on the line as soon as our call screen is free he'll ask if you have the book if you don't i want to send it to you as a gift may the lord be your strength may you find transformation in him. Stay right there. Thank you, my brother. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to the Line of Broadcast, Line of Fire broadcast, Michael Brown. Delighted to be with you. You know, if I trip on words that I say over and over, I know exactly what I do because I'm three sentences ahead and deciding which direction I'm going to go. So live in the moment, live in the now. We've got a phone line open if you'd like to call in 866-348-7884. Just remember to order your copy of The Political Seduction of the Church. I did not write this book to be popular. I did not write this book to make money. I did not write this book to gain followers. In fact, many will be offended by what I've written, but I'm sure it's true. I'm sure it's right. And I'm sure if those who are offended will take it in, they'll be helped. They'll be blessed. And, and I wrote this book as someone who voted for Donald Trump twice. And if I could go back in time based on what I knew then, I would have voted for him twice. All right? So this is not some never Trumper. This is not some always Trumper. This is an always Jesus person saying if we can, if, if we can recognize mistakes that we made as a church, even those who didn't vote for Trump, the battle, the division, the, the hatred, the so ugly, what happened to us? We can do better. So go to the website, sdrbrown.org. You can get your signed, numbered, advanced copies. We just sent out a bunch more today. All right, let us go over to Andy in Utah. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Thanks for calling. Hello? Oh, yes, you're on the air. Oh, thanks for taking my call, Dr. Brown. Sure. I, I enjoy your radio broadcast and appreciate the insights and perspectives you have on, on issues of life. Hey, I know you've had uh, previous discussions about uh, the U.S. as a nation and, and where we're at, where we're going. Um, I couldn't help but think about that, some of those discussions, and I, I saw some parallels between the U.S. and Israel. You don't mind me just mentioning a few of them. No, go ahead. Um, one was um, Abraham was a person, and, and, but we had a group of people, the pilgrims, and they were led to a new land. Um, both were established as God-centered uh, nations. Uh, we were, both were meant to be self-governing. Both were meant to be world leaders and influencers, 
and also both were asked to uh, help evangelize the world. So I see a lot of commonalities between our country as when we were established and Israel when they were uh, established as a country. So, yeah, uh, Andy, I, I think I think those those are great observations, and we definitely have been blessed to grow to the superpower that that, that we became in such a short period of time, the world influence that we've had is, is really largely unprecedented. I, I remember reading in a book by Michael Medved about American exceptionalism, and as you look at the world map over a period of a thousand years, or long periods of time, you see a little shift here, a little shift there, and then suddenly with the rise of America, this dramatic shift in, in the world in so many ways. And obviously, I do not believe that God made a covenant with America the way he made with Abraham and Israel. That's where people make a mistake. But I absolutely agree that there are striking parallels and that the principle of to whom much is given, much is required, applies here. And, you know, as an example, we, we don't, I, I don't believe, as I said, that God made a covenant with America the way he, the way he made with, with Israel and that there is that same blessing-curse relationship to that same degree. However, to the extent that we say we have Judeo-Christian roots, our uh, Constitution, our, our Declaration of Independence, the roots ultimately go back to the Bible, the more that we hammer this, the more that we're saying we're accountable, we're accountable, we're accountable. So we're also accountable for the blessings, for the prosperity, uh, for, for the am amount of what we consume. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I, I would agree with you um, that uh, I, I, I know we have countless blessings. I also realize, and again, most people have made the comment that, hey, uh, the U.S. is really not mentioned uh, anywhere like in Revelation, and uh, uh, we don't have that covenant with God like Israel did. However, uh, just like in uh, Romans 13, where God establishes all all, all government. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but I can't think of another country uh, or nation over history that that was established as a, you know, specifically as a Christian nation like the U.S. For one point, and and the second thing, um, God purposed it. So, for me, that's reason for hope. Now, how do, how does it end? We don't know as far as the country. Where, where do we end up, you know, 50, 100, 200 years from now? But I think there's reason for hope because God has a purpose or had a purpose when he set up, the US, when he established the U.S. Yeah, and, and Andy, the, the other thing that I think about, and, and I appreciate the, the observations, the other thing I think about is that so many of God's people in America are burdened to pray for revival, that so many of us feel that it's not over that God could bring great repentance and change before the nation collapses in on itself or divides itself in a way that it is no longer the United States of America. So as long as the, the, the burden is there, we're going to pray. And look, I wrote the book Saving a Sick America about five years ago. And when, when I wrote it, it came out of a prayer time one morning when I just felt this gentle kind of whisper it was just a, an impression rather than a, a shaking thing, write a book on the fall and rise of America. And I thought, 
no, no, on the rise and fall of America. Yet I felt distinctly, no, no, fall and rise. There's still hope. So thank you for the call. 866-348-7884. Let us go to Jules in Canada. Yes. Welcome to the line of fire. Yes, thank you. Uh, I really grateful you have an opportunity. I have an opportunity to talk to you, um, and I thank you earlier today on Twitter. You uh, liked one of my tweets, and I really appreciate that. Oh, well, great! Nice to meet you. Then uh, by phone. Yes, yes. I just want to mention something. Uh, I feel like I'm all alone. I'm trying to get everyone to understand. If you're a Christian, you need a Hebraic perspective, understanding Christianity. You need to regraft it into the Hebraic roots, but there's a balance. Now there is there's Twitter spaces out there. And I don't want to get I don't want to get in specifics, but they are telling everyone that Shabbat started on Saturday morning at six a.m. and Shabbat ends at six uh, six a.m. on the Sunday morning. So six a.m. Saturday morning, to, and I'm thinking, where is this coming from? Because if I check my Hebraic roots. Evening, morning, evening, morning, from dusk to dusk. So I'm asking you, uh, and I know maybe this is something new to you, but these are people that are Jewish roots. They're back into the real realities of understanding the Hebraic understanding of Scripture. But they're saying there's mistakes in the Old Testament, and they've been manipulated and they're saying that, no, no, it's not evening, morning, it's morning, evening, morning, evening. Have you ever heard of, of uh, have you ever come across that situation? Uh, I'm perplexed. I have never and You're actually, uh, okay, there, th- aside from the degree that Christians are required to keep a Seventh-day Sabbath with a specific time in mind, well, we put that aside for, for the moment here, and just this specific yeah. question. The idea that there are mistakes in the Old Testament, this is right from the beginning all the way through. This is presupposed, and in Jewish life to this moment, you know, you wherever you live, you, you just get online, or in the old days, just you look at the newspaper if you're a Jewish person, and it'll tell you Sabbath starts, you know, the exact minute based on sunset, uh, and, and then ends here based on, on sunset, so, yeah, from dusk to dusk, so... No, I've uh, honestly, it it never ceases to amaze me how many bizarre teachings are out there and what kind of weird errors are out there. But no, yeah. the idea that there are mistakes in the the Bible that it's started it was actually morning evening rather than evening morning is is complete nonsense. I, I don't even know where someone would get this idea. Oh. You know, if they wanted to try to say, well, there's a new Sabbath since Jesus rose and he rose in the morning, so we start in the morning, and they want to try to argue that on other grounds, which, which of course, is not a scriptural argument to make. But that, at least, I know where they're coming from. So this is beyond bizarre to me. Yeah, like I said, I'm not talking about keeping Shabbat. That's not the issue I was getting across. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, like, for example, I have a... I have a uh, this is just my best guess. When I think about Jesus rising from the grave, I think of a, of a Saturday night. That's my that's my best guess, because I think of evening morning. So uh, I'm just saying there's, uh, like I said, I, I'm all alone here, <laughs> Dr. Michael Brown, and I know you're a very busy man, but I would love 
if you could ever come on a Twitter space once every two months, uh, we would yeah, love you, my brother. No, I, I appreciate that, Jules. And, and uh, trust me, uh, I, I would love to be in dialogue, debate, discussion with people 24-7, but even jumping in once once a year in certain places is not feasible because of the demands on our time. But thanks. I have no reason not to think of Jesus rising early early in the morning Sunday. I think that's pretty explicit. But in any case, never ceases to amaze me how, how people come up with weird ideas and doctrines. So, Jules, thanks for the very kind words, and thanks for letting us know. All right, 866-348-7884. We've got some phone lines open if you want to call. We'll grab some YouTube questions, too. So if you're over on YouTube, go ahead and post. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us on the Line of Fire. You've got questions. We've got answers. 866-348-7884. Be sure to sign up to get our emails to keep you posted on my latest articles, latest videos, updates on our Israel trip, updates on new publications, resources we have for you. Ask Dr. Brown, askdrbrown.org. Just click to receive the emails, and we'll, we'll put you on our welcome tour, tell you more about my own background from LSD to PhD, how our ministry can serve you, as well as send you a free mini ebook on how to pray for America. All right, back to the phones. We go to Tim in Raleigh, North Carolina. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. First off, thanks for taking my call, and I uh, appreciate your ministry and all that you do. Um, my question for you is regarding Jezebel. So this is 2 Kings 9, verse 30. It says, when, Je- when Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. Just hoping uh, if you could elaborate on that action. Uh, it, to me, when I read that, it makes me think of like a last-ditch effort to seduce is that what that is could you maybe just elaborate on the significance of jezebel painting your eyes adorning yourself and looking out of the window yeah exactly what you said even though she's an older woman at this point she's obviously still a seductress she's still up to her old ways and when we talk about a woman being a jezebel i mean she is she is the forerunner she is the prototype so that's exactly what the text is telling us that she sees this guy coming and she's going to try to play her old tricks on him and win him over and, and bring him under her power. Exactly what it seems, that's exactly what we deduce from it. Yes, sir. Okay, and I guess maybe a follow-up to that. The eunuchs that were in the window that ultimately threw her down, is it fair to assume that they were eunuchs because of her? Because of, you know, I mean, I know a lot of times uh, in the palace, you know, the, the eunuchs, you know, to castrate the males, to prevent them from uh, potentially being with the, the women. But as Jezebel was kind of in power at the time, or you know, was that them getting back at her? You know, what 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 can we, I guess, conclude based on the fact that they threw her down? Right. So a, a few things. There is the symbolic 
meaning the lesson that's learned and then the plain facts of what happened. We don't know why they were eunuchs, but presumably somewhere along in life they were castrated. In other words, they, they weren't born without sexual capacity. They were made into eunuchs. And it wasn't, it wasn't only to, to keep them, say, if they were going to keep a harem from sleeping with the women or, or wanting the women. Uh, the other side to it was, was that by castrating them, it would take away some of their aggressive male drive. And they would just be more passive servants and their gifts and skills could be used without threat to the leadership and things like that. So there, there are different reasons why men were castrated. Of course, it could also just be a cruel punishment. But these were the ones, though, that now symbolically are, are Jezebel's victims. So whether they were made eunuchs by her or not, for sure, Jezebel had the effect of making men into eunuchs. When I talk about spiritual war with Jezebel, we don't mean with her. We, we don't mean with her ghost but we mean those same type of demonic spirits that operated through her operating today. They emasculate men. They take away their sense of authority and confidence. Those who've, who've really had extended spiritual battles and recognize that this was some of what they're dealing with can absolutely relate to that. Yet these are the ones, the ones who had been, again, we're saying this now symbolically, emasculated by her were the ones that threw her to her death. And in Jezebel's War with America, that's the appeal. Those men who have been spiritually castrated. And these things can happen to women in a spiritual, moral sense as well. But speaking in, in particular to men, those men who've been spiritually castrated, those men who've been spiritually emasculated, who've lost their sense of authority and power and faith and conviction and boldness, they are the ones who can rise up by the power of God and bring this Jezebelic spirit down. So there is, there's a lot to learn from it in the account, actually. As short as it is, there's a lot to learn from it. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, thanks, Dr. Brown. You are very welcome, and thanks for the good word. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Brandon in Baltimore, Maryland. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. It's an honor um, to speak with you. Well, thank um, you. My question um, my question is, um, it's a heavy question, um, but it's mainly, I know Christ spoke about how the children of the kingdom will be cast out. Um, I'm not sure if he spoke anything about whether Israel will be saved. I know Paul speaks about it. Mm -hmm. I believe that Israel will be saved. Yes. But I never, I didn't, I was wondering if you have any specific quotations directly from the Lord about whether Israel will be saved? Yes, it, it's a wonderful question. And of course, we know what Paul writes in Romans eleven twenty six. We know what God speaks through Jeremiah and Jeremiah 31, 1. We know the passage in Zechariah 12, 10 and following of, of, of national mourning and repentance in Israel. Uh, the question is, what does Jesus himself say? Because he does speak judgment. He does speak of Gentiles coming in and many of the, the children of the family being kicked out because of disobedience and rejecting him as Messiah. So what does he say that confirms that there will be a turning of the Jewish people at the end of the age? I would say several different passages. First in Matthew 23, beginning in verse 37, where he has 
pronounced seven woes on the hypocritical religious, religious leaders in the previous verses. And then he speaks judgment over Jerusalem and says, your house has left you desolate. And he says, you, you will not see me again until you say, Baruch wow, Habab wow. Hashem Adonai, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, we know in Revelation 1-7 that when he comes, every eye will see him. But he says that Jerusalem will not see him until it welcomes him back as the Messianic King. That's what the words mean, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he will not be seen by the, by the whole world until Jerusalem or the leadership of the Jewish people welcomes him back. So that's the first thing that, that gives hope. Uh, along with that, Matthew 19, Jesus tells his, his disciples, his 12 disciples, obviously whoever's going to replace Judas would, would, would then fill that, that role, that in the, in the renewal of all things, in the new age, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So in the renewal of all things, and we would look at that as the millennial kingdom, that the apostles will be ruling over the 12 tribes. So that's telling you there's going to be a restoration of the 12 tribes. That is encouraging to me. Also, in Luke 21, when Jesus talks about the Jewish people being scattered out of Jerusalem into all nations, that is until the, the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled which is telling me then at that point, there's a physical restoration. That doesn't mention a spiritual restoration there, but there's a physical restoration. So those three mm -hmm. passages, then you tie that in with Acts 3.19, that uh, were the call to repent and Jesus must remain in heaven in the time of the restoration of all things. But what does Peter say? Repent and turn to God that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Messiah whom heaven must retain until the time of the restoration of all things. So Jewish repentance brings the Messiah back. So all these promises together give us real encouragement that, that Jesus at the end of the age will miraculously restore his Jewish people. So we see the ongoing restoration back to the land, the ongoing faith building within the land of more and more Jews in Israel and around the world coming to faith in Jesus, the Messiah, and then the, the final culmination. I was just looking for a testimony. Yeah, just got this yesterday on Facebook. Someone sent me a note, Dr. Brown. I've been listening to you for years. I have an Israeli Jewish friend who we have been talking to about Messiah. He found you on his own and has been watching your videos on YouTube. Long story short, he will be baptized this weekend. Thank you for being so faithful. I pray many more to come. So that, that just made my night reading those words. Another Israeli Jew coming to faith, and we got to play a role in that. But it is a first fruit, so every life counts now. And then at the end of the age, we see the same testimony from Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus, Paul, Peter, that there will be a turning of the Jewish people at the end of the age, and all Israel will be saved. So thank you for the call. I appreciate uh, it. Is there a way if I can have a follow-up question? Yeah, please, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Uh, so as a Gentile believer... Um, what what way would you recommend to talk to someone that's, you know, the people, you know, the people, the scriptures, right. the scriptures are given to them. I can't judge them, you know what I'm saying? Um, right, so so you, you live so, in Baltimore, and you have a, a fairly large religious Jewish community there, and then like the rest of America, you yeah. have secular Jews. 
when you're talking to a secular Jew, non-religious Jew, it's very similar to talking to a non-religious Gentile. You know, they'll have different perspectives. Person may be more atheistic, materialistic, this world oriented, uh, or they may looking, be looking for spiritual truth in all kinds of odd places. So you speak with them, like you speak with anyone else, and then if issues come up because of anti-Semitism in church history, or why would I want to believe in Jesus? I'm Jewish. Then you say, no, no, Jesus is Jewish himself, and anti-Semitism is the opposite of what he taught, and it's an aberration. And, you know, why do you think Christians today are Israel's best friends? It's because of the Bible. Uh, if they're more religious, it's going to be more difficult to, to have a conversation. But I would, I would seek to build bridges. I, I would say, hey, I'm a Gentile Christian, and it's because of uh, Jesus that I, be, that I believe in, in, in the God of Israel, I believe in your God, and I, I believe he's the Jewish Messiah. So obviously you don't believe that, but who is God to you? And, Tell me about your relationship with God and about the meaning of prayer and, and just see if you can have some common ground. And then if there's an interest where you can share your own testimony and then if someone is interested, send them to our website, our Jewish website, realmessiah.com, realmessiah.com. Everybody visit there, check out the abundance of free resources, send your Jewish friends there those who have questions, those who have been hit with objections, who are struggling, realmessiah.com. That is there for you. Hey, Brandon, thank you for the questions. All right, we'll get to some more calls on the other side of the break. And for all of you who pray for us, support us financially, that testimony I just read, you're part of that. You share in that reward. Thank you. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome back to the Line of Fire, 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go to David in New Jersey. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi. Um, pleasure to be here. Well, thanks. So, go ahead. So I have a so my question is, and I know you're a scholar with biblical languages, and so I would respect your opinion on this a lot more than most. Um, so I know that there are two different scripts that we translate our Bibles from. Uh, Bibles like the King James, New King James, and the Mev Bible translate from the Basidian and Texas Receptus, whereas other translations like the NASB, ESV, and other Bibles translate from the Alexandrian and Codex Senecanus. Now, I understand that the Codex Senecanus and the Alexandrian are uh, said to be more reliable because they're older, but the majority of manuscripts don't agree in some places that the Codex and the uh, Alexandrian text uh, say things. Like, in the Father's Prayer, they shorten it in the Codex and the uh, Alexandrian, unlike with the Basidian text. And so my question is, uh, which would actually be more reliable? 
like, would it be more reliable simply because it's older, even though it was found in places that preserve text better? Or is the majority of manuscripts more reliable because they are the majority and they were the ones used for the bulk of the ancient world? Right. So, uh, again, it, it's a question that, that scholars debate, but the majority of textual scholars today who weigh all the evidence, and what you mentioned is, is part of the evidence, but there's, there's a whole mountain of evidence that gets weighed, uh, would agree that the, the manuscript tradition used by ESV and NIV is, is the better one. So the older is better, and that scribes, as a general rule, will lengthen rather than shorten that phrases get added in, that something gets added in for clarity, that if you had, let's just say you had three straight uh, books in the Bible that mentioned prayer and fasting, and the next one just mentioned prayer in a similar context, the scribe would more likely add and fasting than remove it. But for, for quite a number of reasons, the great majority of Greek New Testament scholars today uh, believe that the, the older manuscripts, Vaticanus, etc., that you mentioned, are uh, are the more reliable there again there is debate over this but uh, and my specialty in terms of scholarship is more hebrew bible than greek new testament as far as languages and texts that being said it it does not phase me in the least if someone says well i, I really prefer reading from the the new king james or the the mev which are based on that same textual tradition that the the any addition, let's just say they're additions, with the exception of 1 John 5, 7 in the King James, which is, is absolutely not original. The additions where if, if it adds another reference to the blood of Jesus or adds and fasting, that they, they are truthful and they're in harmony with other biblical texts. So it's absolutely nothing to lose sleep over. It's, it's even, you know, the longer ending of Mark, if it's not the original ending of Mark, which seems clearly it's not. And even if it was not originally viewed as scripture universally, I believe everything in there is truthful and right. So to me, it's more of a, an academic debate that could go either way, but the great preponderance of modern scholarship would say go with the older manuscripts for quite a number of reasons. Um, it's, it's of interest, but it's nothing to consume all your time because the differences end up being, being very minor and ultimately all within the, the range of orthodoxy. Hey, thank you, sir, for the call. I do appreciate it. Uh, let us go to uh, Peter in Cleveland, Ohio, where I just was last weekend. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. This is Peter, the pastor that's good, good friends with Phil Gigliotti and Larry Tomzak. We've talked okay. now and then. All right. Hey, real quick, um, do Christians have to endure the great white throne judgment? I was listening to a sermon by Billy Graham on YouTube where he said he will not be at that great white throne of judgment, and we need not be too. Right, so, so for sure, our, our sins are paid for, and we do not come under condemnation as followers of Jesus. Also for sure, Romans fourteen twelve tells us that all of us will give account to God, believers, and 2 Corinthians five ten says that we'll appear before God's judgment seat. So uh, Christians like Billy Graham, many others, the church in which I got saved, we were told that there are different judgment seats, that there's the judgment seat of Christ, where we give account for our lives as believers and receive certain rewards, and the great white throne judgment where the lost are cast in, into the lake of fire. 
So if we appear before the great white throne judgment, we are those who are not put under eternal condemnation because our names are written in the book of life. All those whose names are not written in the book of life are the ones who, who suffer punishment there in Revelation 20. Uh, if there are two separate thrones, the judgment seat of Christ versus the great white throne, then it's at the former where we give account for our lives. It's also a sobering thing. Uh, I, re I remember when, when Leonard Ravenhill uh, got seriously ill September of, of 1989 at the age of 87 and, and fell into a coma, had a stroke, fell into a coma and never came out of it. And his wife Martha told me, she said, it was, it's actually good because it gives him more time to prepare to meet with God. This is the, the most devoted man that I knew, but it was a very sobering thing for him to think that he was going to give account for his life before the Lord as a believer. Uh, but I don't, th my own view, it doesn't happen at the great white throne. There's a separate judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. I just can't prove it decisively from the Bible. All right. Um, let us go to, uh, let's go to Michael in Brooklyn, New York. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. It's an honor to talk to you. Well, thank um, you. So, yes. So, about last week, I rekindled with an old friend of mine from years ago, and um, we got to talk about many things, and he had brought up how he reads the Quran with his partner, and we just started going back and forth. You know, I told him that I was saved in Christ for years now, and when I mentioned the Bible, he he said that he doesn't believe in the Bible because it was written by a white man, and um, it just baffled me, and I started getting into some of the history, you know, of the Bible and the Jewish roots and everything, and he just would not, he wouldn't accept it, and it baffled me, and he was, it was kind of like trying to explain why 2 plus 2 equals 4, mm -hmm. but he was just not accepting, so I wanted to know you know, if I see him again, what what I, could I say to something to kind of rebut that claim? Because I know it wasn't, but to try to talk to someone who's hard in their heart completely to the Bible and God, um, you know, it's just a different story. It, it, yeah, Michael, I'm sorry to hear that. And it is hard when people reject truth. You know, first, that referencing a white man as opposed to dozens and dozens of different people who wrote the Bible. So it's different than the Quran, which comes from this one man, Muhammad, although, of course, I don't believe for a second that it, it came by divine inspiration. But in any case, that uh, the fact he's not aware that the Bible's written by dozens and dozens of different people, most at least would accept that. If he wanted to say, you know, white men have used the Bible to exploit others and come up with some other narrative, that's a whole other issue. But there, <laughs> in terms of the Middle East... 3,000 years ago, there, there, weren't, there weren't predominantly white men there at all. And if, if you want to show him a text, to maybe to try to open up his, his, his thinking a little bit. Um, this came up with a question someone asked me a few days ago. Take him to Acts 21, towards the end of the chapter, where Paul is mistaken for an Egyptian terrorist, right? So just, just ask your friend, oh, okay. You understand Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament, right? Okay, so we get that. So just ex explain this here. Explain this. How, how is it that he's mistaken for an Egyptian terrorist if he's a white man? The people of Egypt are not white. 
they're 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 darker skin, Middle Eastern, some some even black. So just to ask how how did they get mistaken? How did he get mistaken? Or go to Exodus two, the baby Moses, right, raised by Pharaoh's daughter in Egypt. So thirty five hundred years ago, how does she raise a, a white kid <laughs> as her own? And everybody thinks that, that this is her own kid. So, I mean, it's, it's just so ridiculously wrong and, and illogical. Uh, you, know, you could even say, hey, in Numbers 12, Moses marries a Cushite. Who's a Cushite? It's an Ethiopian woman. So even if he was lighter skinned, he's marrying an African woman. What do the kids look like? So you try to show them that, you know, Exodus 2, Moses being adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. Numbers 12, Moses marrying a black woman. And then Acts 21, Paul being mistaken for an Egyptian terrorist. Again, there's a massive stronghold here, and he's spiritually blind and in rebellion against the truth. But maybe this will jar him enough for him to think, whoever told me this stuff is not telling me the truth. Even about Islam, ask him why Malcolm X was killed. Was part of it that he realized that there were Muslims that were lighter skin? Was that part of the reason? Anyway, may the Lord be with you. And then, of course, prayer. Prayer that God will open his eyes and set him free. Hey, friends, we're out of time. Sorry we can't get to all your calls, but the earlier you call on the show, the better chance we have of getting you. To make sure you visit the website, askdrbrown.org. Check out our resources. Get our emails. Back with you on Monday. Another program powered by the Truth Network.